Good afternoon, Lafayette. This is Joe Cunningham here on the Joe Cunningham Show. News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542 if you want to be part of the program. And I have to start with what may be the oddest story that I think I've seen in quite some time. But it is a story that I, you can't avoid talking about. So I mentioned uh, the other day, and by now you've heard, the, the grand jury in Georgia. It was uh, commissioned by the district attorney in Fulton County. Uh, she is uh, very much of the left, very much uh, anti-Trump, had impaneled this grand jury. And essentially this was kind of a, a situation where you impanel one grand jury to see if there's enough evidence to give to another grand jury to come up with indictments. And so this grand jury said, yeah, I think that – you know, there, there's enough here for some perjury indictments. That's all we know right now, based on the report that was released to uh, that was made public by the judge uh, overseeing that grand jury. But what has happened now, and and this is just odd, is that the the forewoman of this grand jury is a, is a woman named Emily Kors. Emily Kors is a 30-year-old uh 30-year-old woman between jobs according to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution uh and has been making the media rounds which is very very weird. Uh members of grand juries are highly highly encouraged to in, to avoid the media. They uh you do not want members of grand juries to go speaking to the media. But this person has been doing some high-profile media interviews with CNN, MSNBC. And the the sound clips that you get from them are just uh, – she does not sound uh, – she doesn't sound very uh, – I don't want to say sane, but that's kind of it. She she sounds a little unhinged in Emily, this. Emily, thank you for coming on. I do want to say off the top, as you and I just discussed, but for everyone to know, you are somewhat limited in what you can discuss under judges under the judge's orders as of now. But one, we do know, of course, one of the biggest questions remaining for everyone that wasn't in that jury room with you is how many people are in trouble here? What can you tell us about how many people you recommended as a group to face indictments? I, well, thank you for having me, first of all. And I'm, I'm hesitant to speak to something that the judge made a decision not to share. He, uh, I don't know if everyone's aware of this, but there was a hearing um, about what parts of the report should and should not be published in its various forms. And the list, well, the sections that were removed were consciously chosen to be removed. And I don't want to say I have better judgment than the judge. That's totally understandable. Is it, would you say, when it comes to, there are, indi there are indictments recommended, of course. Is it yes. more than 12 people? Is it more than 20 people? I think if you look at the page numbers of the report, there's about six pages in the middle that got cut out. Allow for spacing. It's not a short list. Not a short list. <laughs> More, I mean, when it comes to 75 witnesses, like. See, there, there's, and, and you have to see the video to get the full effect. She's like giving these weird looks at the camera, that giggle there. Um, 
it's, it's just very odd. After everything that you've seen, what would your reaction be if the DA decides against bringing any charges after what you've seen? I will be sad if nothing happens. Like, that's, that's about my only request there is, is for something to happen. I don't necessarily know what it is. I'm not the legal expert. I'm not the judge. I'm not the lawyers. But I, I will be frustrated if nothing happens. This was too much, too much information, too much of my time, too much of everyone's time, too much of their time, too much argument in, in court about getting people to appear before us. There was just too much for this to just be, oh, okay, we're good, bye. And that that was two clips from CNN. Here's a clip from uh, her interview at MSNBC. Did you personally want to hear from the former president? I wanted to hear from the former president, but honestly, I kind of wanted to subpoena the former president because I got to swear everybody in. Mm. And so I thought it'd be really cool to get 60 seconds with President Trump of me looking at him and being like, do you solemnly swear? And me getting to swear him in, I just... I kind of just thought that would be an awesome moment. So there's there's a couple different aspects of this. There's there's the legal aspect, which I've already mentioned, the the fact that you don't want grand jurors, especially before indictments come out, because that actually casts a shadow over the proceedings. And that kind of plays into the optics part of this as well. Uh, Donald Trump and his legal team are going to have a field day over this woman giving some very, uh, very ill-advised interviews to the media before indictments are even handed out, and the uh, you can I can only imagine that the DA in this case it, uh, cringed every time this person spoke in front of a camera because it it really does undermine kind of this undermine the seriousness of those proceedings. Uh, it's very because they they didn't depose Trump. They didn't talk to him. So there's there's no way that you can say that there's there's no way you can say that any of the charges they're recommending will be against Trump. So already right there, that's one place where this falls kind of apart. Uh, as of right now, we only know that there are likely recommended perjury charges uh, indictments. Uh, nothing about anything else. This woman is basically claiming that on the other pages that were uh, redacted from the released report, there's a lot more in there. Some folks on the left have been saying kind of the same thing, but a lot of folks have been uh, basically saying from the start, no, no, this is, uh, it, we're looking at just the perjury stuff. And this is, I mean, uh, there have been Republicans who were subpoenaed and interviewed whose lawyers are already uh, preparing motions to basically quash any indictments that come from this, saying that this woman's basically proving this was a witch hunt from the start, that it was biased. The stuff she's saying is uh, it, it, it proves that this was uh, hostile from the start and was not fair to these Republicans who were interviewed. And, and whether or not you believe that is one thing, but... I think it's important to note that even some prominent Democrats like David Axelrod, who worked for uh, Barack Obama, who is a progressive, he is a commentator on scene. And I actually like listening to his commentary because he's one of those few people that, you know, he's been in the trenches of these elections. He knows what the hell he's talking about. You may not agree with his ideas, but, you know, he knows the stuff about campaigns and strategy. He tweeted this out last night. Weird. 
Does anyone recall the foreman of a grand jury, particularly in a consequential case, doing a media tour before any indictments are made? Like, who is this woman? And I absolutely agree. The best case scenario for the media is that they get some good views. They get that their ratings bump up a little bit because they're talking to this woman uh, before the indictments come out because the indictments look like they're not going to be a whole lot. Uh, It doesn't look like this grand jury out of Fulton County was really able to get a whole lot. Probably perjury charges maybe against Rudy Giuliani, a couple other uh, Republicans, but nothing against Trump and nothing very major against any of those Republicans. So uh, the best case scenario is that she gets her 15 minutes of fame. Their ratings go up a little bit because they're talking about this. And then the actual charges, the actual indictments do come out and it's not really a whole lot. And she doesn't get any more uh, airtime. The worst case scenario, which is I can't dismiss this because this is the, the behavior here is so odd. The worst case scenario is that this woman is a fantastic con artist. Now, her background has allegedly been vetted several media outlets saying, yeah, this woman seems to be legit, but it's it's just not, it is very, very bizarre. It would be, uh, it would be like the foreman of the, of the jury in the OJ Simpson case coming out and saying, you know, we're, you know, the, we're, we're almost done with the verdict. And I got to tell you, uh, I, I really do think that if, if uh, if we do not find him guilty, if we do not find O.J. guilty, uh, this is this has been a waste of our time. That's that's kind of what it sounds like the way she's talking here. But about Trump and, 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 and the Republicans and all this, I this has just been a bizarre news story. And I wanted to talk about it because it kind of goes to something that's a little bit bigger, something else that's in play here, which is just how broken a lot of, of people have become in the last six, seven years over just the mere existence of Donald Trump and the things that he said and the things he's done, what he's done in office, what he's done outside of office, the things he's said. People, uh, Donald Trump has been such a divisive force that people literally are just broken over this. And if this person turns out to be a con artist, that's one more uh, stone that just drags down the, the, the mainstream media over their eagerness to get some dirt against Trump and all the, 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 I mean, we've been told for you know five, six years, the walls are closing in on Trump, and yet again, it's not happening. But at the same time, if this woman is legit, she has just complicated matters for the Fulton County DA in Georgia and has made any future prosecution of Trump a lot harder because she's just proven that one of the grand juries that was impaneled against Trump was biased from the start, or at least that's what they're going to claim. This is a very, very, very weird situation. You don't see this, and you don't see it for good reason. This is the type of, this is the stuff of nightmares for people in the legal profession, that the people who are on the juries that are supposed to be impartial, the jury of the peers, they're supposed to be looking at all this, uh, looking at all of this, uh, you know, impartially, and here we have this woman coming out and saying all these things, including uh, during one uh, interview she did, I think, with the New York Times, was uh, basically out there saying uh, the DA gave us a popsicle party before we started swearing in former House Speaker David Ralston of Georgia. Uh, this is just bizarre. All right, let's uh, let's see. I've, I've, we have one caller on the line. I want to go ahead and take this call real quick, and then we will uh, – 
take this break and come back for a short segment. Hi, welcome to the Joe Cunningham Show. Hey, Joe. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? Oh, man, we're making it. We're making it. Um, yeah, I was just just really keen on uh, on this chick and uh, and how 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 it's just that's a bad situation. You know, she really shouldn't be doing that. And she's she's obviously get the whole thing. She could get it thrown out, couldn't she? I mean. Could they, could they push it that far with her going out and talking right now? I, I'm not sure from a legal perspective. I, I just don't know if they yeah. can throw temple, it temple. out. But, you know, this is this is the grand jury. This isn't a trial itself. This is just recommending yeah, charges. Yeah, I understand. That's just recommendations, yeah. It's but just this, this has I mean, the potential bias, to— really. This, this has the potential to screw up a future trial based on those indictments. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this could— Going forward, yeah, it's a it's got problems. Yeah, absolutely, and that yeah. I think that's that's yeah. got the prosecutors a little bit panicked here. Uh, I got to yeah, take this board. break. Thank yeah. you very much for the call. Yeah, man, go ahead. All right, you All have right. a good one. Uh, we're going to take this break. We will be back in just a moment. Of course, your calls, your messages on uh, the KPL app chat. Love to hear from y'all. We'll be back in just a moment with more here on the Joe Cunningham Show News Talk ninety six point five KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5. KPL 232-1542 if you want to call, uh, let your voice be heard, or check in through the KPL app chat. In fact, Mark from New Iberia did. The juror should be removed and fined. Uh, in, in normal circumstances, like if this were if the process were still ongoing, then yeah, but the, the grand jury is officially dismissed, uh, but there are no indictments yet. So she's not breaking any rules, kind of like I said earlier. They don't bar grand jurors from speaking to the media, but they highly, highly discourage it, especially in cases like this when there are no indictments that have come forward. And that kind of this, it undermines the prosecution. It uh, delegitimizes the grand jury efforts. Uh, I mean, they, they spent a lot of time and a lot of taxpayer money talking to 75 people, talking to all these folks, trying to get to the bottom of all of this. And this person has just gone out and done a major Herculean effort at undermining all of it. Uh, Just very, very bizarre behavior. Also bizarre. And I heard this earlier today, and now I'm seeing it kind of trickle out onto social media. Uh, Apparently, this woman's Pinterest account has been found. Now, if you're not aware of what Pinterest is, it's a social media network where it, it's focused the focus is pin boards where you find ideas you like and you start pinning these things uh they're ideas for you to use later there's just things you're interested in that sort of stuff and this woman's pinterest included boards that were uh devoted to witchcraft crystals stuff like that so just odd very very odd all the way through um and i i i just you know if if you ha- I, I have to feel bad for uh, for the, the prosecutor. I don't agree with what the prosecutor's doing, um, clearly trying to make a, a, you know, trying to make a name for herself as DA. But to put all that effort in and then to have one loose cannon of a grand juror, the forewoman, the foreperson of this grand jury, go out and do these media hits and essentially undermine the entire case that goes above and beyond uh, anything that a prosecutor can expect in terms of things that would derail their case. And so you almost have to feel bad for that. Um, And then again, the, 
She said in an interview that the DA's office threw the grand jury an ice cream party, which also I've never heard of. Now, some of y'all in the legal community, maybe you know something about that. Maybe that is a regular thing. I've never heard it before. Uh, And again, that just kind of adds to the whole mystery behind this and just the frankly odd behavior of everything here. All right. Enough of that. When we come back, I want to talk a little bit about the Louisiana governor's race, kind of where we're at right now, and something interesting in the presidential race. We have a new candidate who's jumped in, and it's not somebody a lot of people have heard of. We'll have that and more here on News Talk 96.5 KPEL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPEL 232-1542. If you want to be part of the conversation, you can also send a message through the KPEL app chat So we're getting our first look at the financials for the governor's race. And Jeremy Alford at Law Politics, uh, he is predicting this could probably be the most expensive uh, governor's race in Louisiana history, could top $100 million of spending. Uh, Right now, Jeff Landry has more than $5 million cash on hand, and that's a loan. That doesn't include another $1.5 million from a political action committee supporting him or the $350,000 from the Louisiana GOP. Uh, so he's sitting on a lot of money. Meanwhile, Landry's campaign uh, continues to add to that. They are, they're pushing very hard to raise that money. This is going to be an expensive race. Uh, let's see. Uh, John Schroeder, state treasurer, $2.4 million of cash on hand. Uh, Senator Sharon Hewitt has $617,875 cash on hand. That includes $200,000 from uh, in a loan from herself to her campaign. Uh, Mandeville State Representative Richard Nelson has almost $200,000 cash on hand. Meanwhile, Hunter Lundy, the independent attorney out of Lake Charles, has 1.65 million cash on hand, including 1.4 million of his own money. Now, the big question here, as Alford notes, is Sean Wilson. He wasn't able to fundraise before he retired, which happened last week. He retired from Louisiana Department of Transportation Development. Uh, he's going to need help from the Ed- from the John Bell Edwards political machine that helped him get elected all those years ago. Uh And the Democrats really don't have any other options besides Sean Wilson. Uh, Katie Bernhardt said she was not going to run. That was after some fierce blowback to a political action committee ad that she uh, pushed out that was ostensibly meant to raise awareness about that that pack, but was also an introduction of herself to the people of Louisiana. Got a lot of negative pushback, so she ultimately had to come out and say, no, no, I'm not running for governor, and that was that. Uh, Sean Wilson seems to be the Democrats' only real hope here. And so he's retired from DOTD. I imagine you'll see an announcement from him before too long. Uh, No other word on anybody else jumping in. Now, all of that said, all of that said, where does Louisiana stand as far as this race? So if we've got millions of dollars that are already being fundraised and that fundraising is going to continue, where are we going to go from here? Well, ideally for the Republican Party, you're going to have a, uh, these this handful of Republican candidates who are all building up their own profiles 
and not attacking each other. That's what happened in 2019. That's what led to the disaster that was Eddie Rispone's campaign. Uh, he spent a lot of time and money attacking Ralph Abraham in the primaries and left John Bell Edwards alone, which meant John Bell Edwards didn't have to spend any money at all in the primary and, and focus on the runoff. And that's exactly what he did. So I know I've explained this before, but I want to explain it again. There's a reason that campaigns work a certain way during the election season. During primaries, the bulk of your money is being spent to build up your own profile. So let's say Jeff Landry has $10 million on hand by the time people are getting ready to vote. He is going to want to spend almost all of that money touting what he's done as attorney general, touting his positions and focusing on the state's future, stuff like that. The the places where the state is weak and how he's best equipped to do that. He does not need to attack any other Republican in the race. He doesn't even really need to attack Sean Wilson. He just needs to spend that money to keep his profile high. He's already got an incredibly high state profile. On the flip side of that, uh, let's go Richard Nelson, Representative Richard Nelson, needs to spend all of his money introducing himself to the state. He's got to go around the state. He's got to campaign. He's got to drop ads. He's got to do everything to get the state to know his name and why he's the best pick. Same for Sharon Hewitt. Same for, for John Schroeder. If they spend any of their money attacking other Republicans, they do two things, neither of which is good. The first is that's less money they get to spend promoting themselves. The second is it divides the Republican Party vote. Attack ads are run after primaries in states unlike Louisiana, where there's you know party pri- party primaries, and then um, and then uh, general elections. They uh, they're you know the parties are on separate tickets, so the primaries are just spent on themselves. It's all about building up your name ID and building up your support. When the general comes around, or in Louisiana's case, when the runoff comes around from the jungle primary, you start spending money to attack other people. You do that not because you're trying to bring people over to your side. You're just trying to get their side to stay home. So when you run attack ads against somebody in your own party, you are convincing voters in your own party to stay home. They don't like the negative. They don't want to be part of it. They'll just decide, you know what? I'm not going to be party to this. I'm going to stay home and do something better on Election Day. That's how it typically works. When you run an attack ad as well, and here's what Eddie Rispone learned the hard way back in 2019. When you run attack ads, you're not only getting their voters to stay home, you inevitably get your own voters to stay home because, again, voters don't like the negativity. You are sacrificing some of your own vote with the hope that it takes out more of your opponent's voters. And when you attack somebody in your own party, you are basically doubling up on the number of voters that you're telling to stay home. And that is the primary reason 
that Eddie Rispoti ended up losing. He angered so many Republicans with his negative campaigning and his attack ads that he ultimately just convinced too many Louisianians, uh, Republicans to stay home. And that's what the Republican Party can't afford to do this time. So instead, what the Republican Party is hoping for is a good, clean race where everybody's focused on building themselves up and sharing why they should be the next governor. And and I've said it before, I think a lot of the candidates in this race have a perspective, have a voice in this race that needs to be heard on the debate stage, and they need to share that voice without attacking anybody else. On the debate stage, you will probably see some nitpicking going back and forth if they decide to have debates. I hope they do. But the big problem is going to end up being Where's the line? Where is the line between a, a an attack that dings somebody for a position and an attack that keeps Republican voters from showing up on Election Day? That's what people are hoping for. People are hoping for a race that isn't too negative, that they can focus on ideas, they can focus on the personalities and make an informed decision based on that. They don't want to basically, you know, have to stay home because they are so tired and exhausted of the negativity. That makes Sean Wilson an interesting case here because he hasn't officially declared, and he doesn't really have a whole lot of policy positions because he's been working for years and years at the Department of Transportation and Development. I mean, you could say that Obviously, Louisiana roads, Louisiana infrastructure isn't that great. So what the hell's he been doing at DOTD? But Wilson, for the people who know him or know of him, they generally like the guy. And they don't often hold DOTD responsible as much as they hold the governor and the legislature responsible for bad infrastructure. So it becomes even more imperative for Republicans to stay positive and focus really on building up their profiles and getting voters to say, you know what, I got to go with this person. I think they're, they're the one who best represents me. If, say, Sharon Hewitt decides I'm just going to try to take out Jeff Landry, that becomes a major problem for the Republicans. It hurts Landry, it hurts Hewitt, and it hurts the Republicans in general. What I think is interesting is the story that was out earlier today. You heard you heard it during our newscast that Billy Nungesser has basically made amends with Jeff Landry. But Nungesser basically had to. Nungesser is trying to run for re-election as lieutenant governor. I don't know if Nungesser thinks that after Jeff's terms he could, you know, run for governor when, when Jeff is term limited. I'm not sure what the what his overall goal there is. But you're a Republican who's running for a statewide office, you can't alienate the odds-on favorite to be the next governor, and you can't alienate your state party, which Nungesser did in a fit of rage for several weeks, and he's finally starting to make amends because he needs access to money and the Republican Party. He needs to make sure that he can stay on top where he is so that he can remain politically relevant. And so what we're seeing now is the Republican Party kind of start to heal, which is why I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of inter-party fighting. Um... And I think that you're going to to see a lot more positivity, a lot more talk about ideas and issues like that. My hope, my hope is that the Republican Party uh, 
their candidates, if they you know stay above that fray and everything, that they will ultimately uh, be able to come out on top. Nothing against Sean Wilson. I, I don't know him very well. I don't know his policies very well. But I think that Republican governance would do a lot better uh, for the state. That's, you know, my partisan belief. And I that's so I want to see them be successful. But with all of the money in play, my worry is that somebody is going to feel like that cash is burning their pocket. And so they want to take somebody else down a notch or two. And that's going to ultimately be an issue. All right, let's take this break. When we come back, we've got a new candidate in the presidential race. And nobody really knows him, but the stuff that he's bringing to the table, also pretty interesting, and Republicans should hear him out on it. That and more here on the Joe Cunningham Show, News Talk 96.5 KPL. Welcome back to the Joe Cunningham Show here on News Talk 96.5 KPL 232-1542 if you want to be part of the conversation. So... As of yesterday, we have another declared Republican for the presidential primary in 2024, and it's not one of the ones that we've been talking about. This name has actually been floating around for a little bit. Uh, I wasn't sure what to make of it. I, I really didn't know much about the guy. His name is Vivek Ramaswamy, and he is an entrepreneur, and he is a self-described anti-woke crusader. He, um, he's the author of a book called Woke Inc., Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. He's been an advocate against DEI and ESG, the Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and, uh, and Environmental, Social, and Governance uh, uh, initiatives that you see in the corporate sector, DEI being... Uh, that kind of uh, that kind of social justice training uh, for making people more aware of diversity and, and and all that stuff, and ESG being a um, that being a corporate plan for investments, um, identifying places to invest that follow certain uh, woke guidelines uh, in terms of you know good environmentalism. Uh, goods, uh, they follow all the right social issues, stuff like that. But uh, Ramaswamy is, I think, an interesting figure here. He is uh, the son of Indian immigrants, uh, born in the U.S., is a self-made man. He is an entrepreneur that has started up uh, companies, uh, particularly in the healthcare and tech sector. And I think the GOP really would uh, benefit from having somebody who has actually been at the front lines on the corporate side fighting the ESG stuff, the DEI stuff. And I think it, it benefits them a lot to have uh, another diverse voice in there. So you've got Nikki Haley, you've got uh, Vivek Ramaswamy. And you've got Donald Trump, who are the declared candidates. Again, probably Tim Scott, probably Mike Pence, probably Mike Pompeo, probably Ron DeSantis, maybe a few others. One of the things that the Republican Party needs to watch out for, though, 
is the overcrowding of the field. Now, actually, there are folks in Trump's orbit who are applauding Ramaswamy for getting in, but that's because they think that it will uh, it will muddy up the and water down the uh, Republicans that are that are not voting for Trump and make Trump more likely to be the nominee. And I'm not entirely sure that's the case, but I do think that the Republican Party benefits from having these different perspectives in here. I've, I've mentioned this several times already. And I, I, I think you know, the Republican Party really is kind of facing an identity crisis right now. They don't know who they are as a party. We've gone super populist. We've gone ultra conservative. We've gone very, uh, very socially moderate, fiscally just out the window in terms of any sort of conservatism. There's no real identity here. It's all cult of personality at this point. And the Republican Party needs to figure out what it is their voters really want policy wise and try to make that happen. So they need to have these conversations on these different policies and kind of restructure what they think the party needs to be doing going forward. Now, you and I can say the same things. We need fiscal sanity. We need social conservatism. We need all these things, all these things that we've talked about for years. But the fact is, you're not going to get all of that in a politician. But if we are having these idea-based conversations rather than cults of personality running around saying this, that, or the other, it actually benefits the Republican Party because then some new things get brought to the table, and those things have the potential to really electrify the base there. So I'm kind of hoping that we see that, but I don't know for certain. All I can say is that I, I'm actually a fan. I'm, I, I actually do like uh, Vivek Ramaswamy being in the mix here. All right, that's it for me. I'm going to be out for another 23 hours. Talk to you guys again tomorrow. In the meantime, follow me on Twitter at Joe P. Cunningham, Facebook.com slash Joe Cunningham Show, and reach out Joe at RedState.com. Shannon is offsides next. You will enjoy today's show, I believe. In the meantime, this is the Joe Cunningham Show. I'm Joe Cunningham signing out right here on News Talk 96.5 KPL.